Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And Jenna Ipkar. Yo. Today we're going to be talking about overlooked film scores. You know, everybody knows the big film scores, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, whatever. We're going into the deep cuts with this one. And to start it off, John, I think we should start off with the best one, the most obscure one, the one everybody should be listening to just as an album, which is Stevie Wonder. Yeah, this one, we made a whole bunch of little lists uh, for what we were going to talk about. And this was the first one I put on my list, and I kept coming back to it, not just because the score is so good, which it is, but because the story behind it is like the weirdest story. The year is 1979. Stevie Wonder is fresh off a string of successes, almost unparalleled in his particular genre of music. Paul Simon, when he won the Grammy for Graceland, famously thanked Stevie Wonder for not releasing an album that year. (laughs) Stevie Wonder at this point in his career after Songs in the Key of Life, I think right after Talking Book, you know, just everything you've ever loved from him. He goes ahead and does the score for a documentary called The Secret Life of Plants about how plants can talk to each other and their intelligence, their hidden secret lives. And the movie's like the weirdest movie. I mean, it it is bound to be at this point. It's It's... Like part of that genre of like weird 70s nature documentaries like the Hellstrom Chronicles that are all just, I mean, there's almost no comparison for them. Yeah, and there's, what you're watching they're kind of obsolete at this point. Yeah. Right? All the science and everything. The closest thing, yeah, is like imagine if like Drake did the score for Loose Change. Like there's <laughs> nothing, there's almost nothing else you can compare this to now. Right. But the upshot of it is that the score is incredibly good. Yeah. And it's, it's separated into songs that are legit songs, unlike a lot of the scores we're going to talk about later, which are more sort of uh, instrumental and sort of loopy. But this is, you know, this could stand alone as an album. Yeah, these songs could easily be singles and hit ones at that. Yeah. My favorite of them is this one near the end called Come Back as a Flower, which I actually used as a temporary track when I was editing the movie I'm working on now. It's got this like really soft, Stevie Wonder actually doesn't sing on that one, so I'm not sure it's representative of the whole album, but it's just this like really beautiful little quiet song that this woman is singing nearly a cappella about how when she dies, she wants to come back as a flower. Mm. And then the other great one is this one that um, hopefully we'll play a little piece of called Black Orchid, which is about a black orchid, and it's sort of a metaphor for... Um, you know, the underclass in America. But Cody, you had sort of a good observation about this one. Yeah, he can't see plants. (laughs) And uh, when you're listening to the album, you could swear the man could see plants. It it just wouldn't even enter into your mind that this is a blind man writing so beautifully about plants and composing these wonderful melodies. I mean, this is a man who, who can't see these flowers that he's talking about. And Black Orchid in particular, I think that's probably my favorite track off of it. And it's just, I mean, I, I, I adore Stevie Wonder. This is, this is some of his best stuff. A flick of snow within a storm A new way waiting to be born in a world with need for change, a touch of love and fear of hate, 
A rushing wind that's asked to wait For the promises of rain A pearl of wisdom entrapped By poverty She gives love with purity Filling minds with hopeful schemes To build worlds enhanced by peace Draped in sparkling morning dew She expresses life anew From the earth beneath her feet She is a flower that grows Love of She's femininity And it's just this little documentary that I guess probably isn't even on DVD. I saw it on YouTube once uh, a couple years ago. I don't know if I've found it since. It's yeah. sort of, it's a little bit of a cult classic, but the cult for things like this is vanishingly small. Mm. It's like me and like a thousand people, most of whom live in Eastern Europe. There's <laughs> not a lot. There's not a lot of people who would find this. The yeah, I didn't hear. I didn't know about this at all. I'm really happy that you like brought it up and brought my attention to it because it's awesome. This oh, music yeah, I is got, so good. I got some things in the vault that would blow you all away. This <laughs> is, I've been saving this one. for Yeah, we had to lead right with this moment. one because, I mean, even if you're not a fan of film scores, you know, this is this is probably the pick that you could just listen to as just an album. Yeah, you know? I mean, if you don't like Stevie Wonder, then just go. Yeah, Well, the much. thing about I, it is... Um, there's that like conspiracy theory now about how Stevie Wonder really can see. Yeah. <laughs> he's just been faking it for the whole time. That's my favorite conspiracy theory. But easily. nobody, I guess because nobody knows about it, nobody ever brought up this album right. where he's like describing the experience of like looking at plants <laughs> exactly. and like looking at a field and like the colors of plants. Yeah. And I feel like we could blow the lid off the whole <laughs> The whole thing, if the conspiracy guys got it together enough to find the oh yeah the wonder deep cuts. I think oh, yeah. this just goes towards the conspiracy that plants are secretly talking and only Stevie Wonder can hear it. Because yeah, all they're, they're doing is I'm describing. comfortable <laughs> believing that. Clearly, they're telling him what they look like. Yeah, that's just you know. It's strange that it's sort of like the surviving vestiges of the hippie community haven't latched onto this movie because it's yeah. such a. It's just, it could be like such a new age hit. I feel like yeah. I mean, I guess the whole the whole environmental movement has moved towards, you know, saving our asses rather than, <laughs> you know, just relishing in the majesty of uh, plants and can they talk and can they feel and if you yell at them, will they not grow as well and all that. That was kind of like this this period of that's, I guess, obsolete now, but it was yeah. it was a very hopeful, interesting period, I think. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't because if the conclusion is that plants are sentient and can talk, what are we going to eat? 
That's like that Jack Handy joke where he's like, if trees could talk, would we be so cavalier in chopping them down? Maybe if they just yelled all the time for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Jenna, let's, uh, let's check out one of your picks of an overlooked score. I'm going to lead with uh, Al Cooper, actually. So, so some more 60s music for you guys. Great Al choice. Cooper, uh, if you don't know, because you probably do know him, but you might not realize, not Alice Cooper. Al Cooper was Mm-mm. the guy who played the organ uh, for Bob Dylan. The famous uh, Like a Rolling Stone. The, that's a great story because he literally just walked in. Yeah. They were like, hey, we uh, don't have one play organ. He goes, I'll do it. He actually couldn't play it. He's like, that's why he's like a half second off. He's listening to where everyone else is playing so he can play. But then he went on to have a really awesome career and a really great solo career, which I think is largely overlooked. And so he did this whole soundtrack for The Landlord, which is a Hal Ashby movie. And he wrote Feed My Frankenstein and Poison and was in John Carpenter's <laughs> Prince of Darkness. And he was great in Wayne's World. He was incredible. <laughs> really, really in funny. World, yeah. Really delivered the lines great in Wayne's World. He actually produced Leonard Skinner, so that's close enough. Did he really? Right? Yeah, he found them. Wow. wow. Yeah. No, Al Cooper is awesome. You guys all have to go Google Al also, Cooper. Also, like the... For how much the the folk people now hate Skinner, they had such weird roots in like the folk world. Like um, Powderfinger, the the Neil Young song was written for Skinner, mm. and then they died before they could record it. Mm. But uh, the landlord, Hal Ashby, awesome. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about uh, basically Brooklyn Bar- Park Slope, specifically in the 1970s, which now is a sort of uh, opulent neighborhood, but in the time was a kind of a total shithole. Yeah, very different place. Majorly different place. And uh, it's about uh, basically a white guy moving in and gentrifying the neighborhood, <laughs> buying a building and becoming a landlord. Uh, but the soundtrack is awesome. It's this total like gospel exploitation style, uh, which I think, you know, honest, uh, indicated uh, movies that came after it in a lot of ways with the soundtrack choice. And uh, the- What year was it from? It was 69, you said? Came out in 19, 1970, exactly. I'd say that my favorite track off of it is Brand New Day, which is the, uh, the mm. staple singers uh, in, in Al Cooper. Really, like, great, like, build-up, makes you feel good. Like, you know, play it on the radio as you're walking down the street, like, grabbing a nice cold Coke or something. <laughs> if you like, like horn sections and yeah, horn parts orchestrated, and songs. awesome song.
concerns on this, I mean, they it's criminal that they haven't been sampled to my knowledge. Maybe they have, but it's just it would loop so well and somebody's got to use it in hip hop. But people have used Al Cooper stuff in hip hop, right? Yeah, the the flute loop. I know that um, the, the Beastie Boys used um, was actually an Al Cooper uh, song called Flute Thing. Right. Which I think has actually been used for about like 20 other different songs. If you just look up Flute Thing, you can find about a million other songs for yeah he's it, one but. of those he's one of those guys like leslie west from mountain where like their stuff has just been used so much in hip-hop that they're basically like you know grandfathers of hip-hop in their own right he was i'm i'm pretty sure that he was down for it too yeah yeah same with leslie west he's he's big and supported all that yeah i mean that soundtrack i the some of the orchestrated stuff is a little bit um forgettable i'll be honest but i think that the main uh choices there's the love theme from the landlord is the other big song on that soundtrack and and both of them really solid overlooked movie and i mean al cooper's overlooked and that soundtrack's awesome you guys have to check it out yeah man all right my pick i'm gonna go a little bit different from what has come before I'm going to go for kind of a recent one, 90s, Joel Goldsmith, Cull the Conqueror soundtrack. Now, this is a movie, this is Kevin Sorbo doing Conan, basically. You know, it's cashing in on that whole thing. And it's a really, really good melding of metal and orchestra. It's just very listenable. It blends perfectly and it makes the movie so much better. It's kind of a cheesy, junky movie, but the the music gets you really pumped and into it. And you want to see what happens because you want to hear more music cues almost like it opens with kind of a fight that just gets you really into it, even though the fight's not that great, like choreographed or anything. Yeah, like Queen with Highlander. Yeah, we're like exactly. You don't realize until five years later that the movie wasn't that good. Oh, horrible! <laughs> horrible. But uh, yeah, the score really carries you through it, and that's a testament to the score because the movie doesn't carry you through it. You know, and it does such a great job of blending, as you said. I don't know why more scores haven't done it because metal music, when it's great, is basically just like you know orchestrated like Absolutely. classical music, but yeah. really fast and really loud. Yeah, if you look at rock as having its roots in blues, I've always thought of it as metal having its roots in classical, definitely primarily. And uh, yeah, it's just a very exciting, fun score. You don't even have to like metal; it's just like it has that kind of visceral pumping quality to it that just really carries the film. 
super accessible. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a way cinematic genre. It's a genre I never ever listened to. I like maybe like five or six songs of like the post Sabbath metal stuff. Mm. But when you put the songs that I don't really like that much in movies, in scenes that are also going fast, it really works. Yeah, a great example uh, is uh, the band Power Mad. They have a song called Slaughterhouse that was in Wild at Heart. That uh, that scene where he's uh, you know, dancing at the oh, yeah. mosh pit. Great scene. Great, great song. Really works for it. Even if you don't like metal, you just get into it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love that scene. I've always I've always really dug uh, uh, Lynch's metal choices for films. He he used some Ramstein and. Um, Lost Highway that really works for it and is like one of the really, really choice tracks, which is just, it's called uh, Romstein, Romstein. It's like, I love when bands do like songs that are just the name of the band. Like Iron Maiden has a song called Iron Maiden. And it's just always fun when you find that that a band did that. And uh, it's a great track. Lynch, apparently really good taste in metal. All right. So John, you got another pick for us? Yeah, uh, I'm going to bring up one that I actually almost forgot to bring up at all. Booker T and the McGees for Uptight by Jules Dessin. Uh Uptight was a remake in 1968 of... The, the movie's brilliant and the concept behind it is brilliant. Really well shot, too. Yeah. Gorgeous. It's, it's a remake of The Informer, which was John Ford's movie set in Ireland during the Troubles about an IRA guy who informs on another IRA guy. And he knows he's getting in trouble for it. You know, he knows he's going to get killed by the IRA for it, but he was starving and he needed the money. And it just follows him like having informed afterwards. So Uptight takes that premise and puts it in America in a city. I forget which city right after MLK was assassinated. Right. And it's one of the one of the Panthers who informs on another one of them. And the movie's brilliant. But the score, it's one of those scores that everybody's heard a million times and nobody knew it came from the movie. There's this one time is tight, which is um, like a seminal, I guess like jazz rock coming into R and B type of song yeah. um, that like, I promise you, you've heard 500 times. Everybody's heard it. It's a very, very famous song. It sounds like the angry beavers theme. <laughs> The music and the movie probably work better in context. And I think it's worth, it used to be on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is, but I think it's worth going back to Uptight to seeing that, that song, which you know very well, like in its original place. Yeah. It's like going back and watching Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and seeing Knocking on Heaven's Door in the scene that it was written for. Mm. I'm going to jump 
actually chronologically chronologically i'm i'm in the same uh spot here but i'm going to uh a lizard in women's skin which came out in uh 71 good old uh giallo film that actually ennio morricone did the soundtrack for and you know ennio morricone who you all know from you know the good the bad and the ugly all the sergio leone movies uh, he was fairly prolific, actually. He did a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of weird experimental jazz, and he's then a whole like bunch of Jalo. Or something, uh, yeah. He's still alive, yeah. No, I, had, I mean he's done like 140 movies or something, hasn't he? Is, is he's probably like age. 140 years old now, too. <laughs> also, yeah. yeah. <laughs> his output though is like staggering. Yeah. Yeah, and this one I think is overlooked. The movie's overlooked, and this this the one song La Luchertola, which is the lizard, is uh, amazing. You could listen to this song on its own. It sounds like it's being played backwards. Uh, you can, I mean, you can even tell the whole what the whole movie's like, and that's that's actually the the best part about that yeah. song is it really cues you into what that whole movie's like, and the movie's good. Like it's creepy while still being really lush. Yeah, you know, like those those sixties Morricone ones are so big and so lush, and then this one manages to do that while still being like you feel like you're in like an abandoned barn. Yeah, with like a, there's like this woman's voice, just like, you know, there's no lyrics. It's just like la 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 kind of stuff, but yeah. really dreamy, really ethereal. Mm. It's awesome song. I feel like underrated Morricone is like almost its own genre. Oh, well, definitely. Yeah. So, so, so much. There's so much that, you know, some great stuff has to fall by the wayside. One of my favorites was White Dog, which is becoming a, a little more famous now. Sam Fuller directed it. It's in the Criterion Collection now. Yeah. So, you know, people have now seen white dog which is nice because nobody had for years but it's like one of the only other ones i know from him where he has that like minimalism he has in the in the score to the thing mm -hmm. which i always thought was one of his best uh white white dog he has that and then he just marries it he marries that like carpenterish thing sound with just like a tiny bit of the good the bad and the ugly especially that track in the good the bad and the ugly death of a soldier where they're playing 
while uh, Tuco's getting beat up in the prison camp. And it's the one they're playing on the violin. Like, there's just like a hint of that lushness and like composition, but in, in the, the minimal escape of the, the 80s synth stuff he was doing. It's a great score, I think. Yeah, he's got a lot of range. I bought tickets to see him in Brooklyn, and then he got sick and canceled. It was so sad. Oh, no. Hopefully he comes back. Yeah. All right, a pick of mine is uh, my favorite music from any Woody Allen movie. It's uh, Cassandra's Dream, which was his first drama after Matchpoint, and people kind of were like, eh, it's not as good as Matchpoint, so it sucks about it. But it's like a, it's a good movie, and it's got great performances, and... Very simple tale. It's one of those movies, I can't think of too many that really capture this as well as this one, which is it really captures the remorse after a murder Mm. of the killer. Mm. And it really goes like fucking hard with it. Like you really feel like the visceral, like just disgust and nausea that just permeates for like days and days and days. Uptitis kind of like that. mm, Yeah. And uh, I think it's a, I think it's a very, very good Woody Allen film. Maybe not one of the greats, but a very, very good one. And the score, the Philip Glass score, it's my favorite Philip Glass score. It's my favorite score to any Woody Allen film. And it's got this great melody that just keeps on going and going and going and just doesn't let you out of it, except for in these like little brief moments. And then it just goes right back into it really hard. And it just, the entire soundtrack, every single song that he did for that movie is just fantastic. It's it's one of those soundtracks... I've listened to that soundtrack straight through so many, so many times when I'm just writing or whatever. It's very, very listenable, very moody, great, great stuff. Definitely one of my favorites. really just like summed up philip glass really well about this like you know like never ending pounding mm-hmm. and with yeah. like a brief moment a brief interlude yeah, he's relentless he's awesome yeah love philip glass you have a favorite uh philip glass oh yeah philip glass like morricone like i feel like everybody has their deep cut favorite yeah i really like his score for dracula the 31 film which um 
Dracula, when it was released in 1931, it didn't have music behind it, right. which is part of the reason that it's like, for me at least, I can't deal with Dracula. Mm-hmm. I love almost all the other universal horror movies. Like Frankenstein, the first three Frankenstein movies are top shelf, top 20 all time for me. And even the low budget Dracula sequel, Dracula's Daughter, I like a lot. But Dracula, I just can't deal with it. It's so slow and so, it has no pulse. Right. And Philip Glass, he takes that like relentless approach to it. So all those long shots of them like riding into the Carpathian Mountains and stuff, which in the original are just sort of, you know, they sit there because there's nothing accenting them. Yeah. They have that like, that like Philip Glass, you know, that that sound he has in the background of every one of it. He has a different melody over it, but he always has that same almost like beat, that same like played on a different instrument each time, but that cutting like relentless drive. And it, it, it makes the movie feel probably 20 minutes shorter. Yeah, it changes the whole experience for sure. And Frankenstein, you said no score for Frankenstein, but you don't really notice. Yeah, uh, Frankenstein's a lot shorter. And um, and also Dracula was based on a stage. Well, no, they were both based on stage plays. But Frankenstein, I feel like there was a lot more screenplay development to turn it into a movie. Yeah. Dracula was kind of, it fell apart because um, Todd Browning, he always wanted to do it with Lon Chaney as the lead. And then Lon Chaney died. And Browning was still stuck to the movie, and I think his heart was not in it. So Frankenstein, you feel like the the passion went into Frankenstein, and it just didn't into Dracula. Yeah, and Philip Glass definitely brings heart back into that film. Yeah. There are YouTube clips where you can see uh, live performances of the score being played live over the film, and you get a really great glimpse of how well it works. So definitely check those out. We'll, we'll probably put a link to one or two of those. I'm going to bring it on down to 73 now. For Oh Lucky Man by Lindy, uh, Lindsay Anderson, who uh, I love. I love this movie. This is, if uh, you ever read it on my uh, Always Watch the Goddamn Film, because this is like a three hour long allegory for the economy <laughs> <laughs> starring Malcolm McDowell. Uh, wonderful movie, though. The last five minutes are amazing and it puts the whole damn thing into perspective and everything yeah, that, clicks. That really turned it around for you. I remember you really saying in did. the piece that you just weren't sure how you felt about it and then bam, now you love it. It all made sense. And I've actually rewatched it really recently because it's a type of movie that like it's long enough that you have to give it a couple years and sure. like, you remember it pretty well. But the one thing that ha- I've actually listened to continually throughout the years and years since I've seen it is the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. And it's all by um, Alan Price. Alan Price, who you might know as the original keyboardist for The Animals. 
So, you know, like House of the Rising Sun and all that, Alan yeah. Price, who also had his own solo career. Uh, he was, uh, he kind of sounds like Randy Newman. He actually helped introduce Randy Newman. Yeah, uh, they were pretty tight. Yeah, he, he covered uh, Simon Smith and his Dancing Bear, like a very orchestrated, like cool version of it. I, I would recommend looking up that YouTube video because it's really like charming. It's great. But uh, the soundtrack for Oh Lucky Man is awesome because it's all like, it has these very sort of like kinks kind of lyrics. It's very like sarcastic, dry humor. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite track is this one called Poor People, where the lyric is just like, you know, hey, poor people are poor people and they're just going to, you know, do their own thing. And, you know, it's about like a man's got to take whatever he wants and, and make it with his own hands and like really great, like, and it's this really upbeat song basically about like, hey, hey, you know what? I'm doing better than you. Go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> Which very similar, of course, to Randy Newman's Short People, which came out a couple of years later and I guess like 77, I think it was. Yeah, similarly, uh, yeah, so disturbing kind of lyrics. Kind of an homage back to uh, Poor People. recommend that whole soundtrack is awesome it's like actually much shorter than the movie i think it's only like maybe like 10 tracks or something mm. but they're all there's a whole bunch of just good little songs that you know are just they're funny and they're great and they're musically really engaging yeah all right i'm gonna pick one that's uh, a D'Amico slash cody favorite which i just discovered you know we both love this one which is a uh, giorgio Moroder. People are really getting into him nowadays because of his collaboration with Daft Punk. He did a gorgeous track on uh, Random Access Memories, uh, the song Giorgio by Marauder. They they blended together so beautifully on that song. And so people are starting to really appreciate Marauder in, in ways that, uh, you know, they haven't for many decades because he kind of really owned the 80s. You know, he defined that sound so well. And uh, one of his best uh, soundtracks from that era is the American Gigolo soundtrack, which gorgeous looking movie, great score, not a great movie. Terrible, I mean, terrible movie. yeah, Richard Gere tries, you know, he, he gives a good performance. It's just not a good script. It's actually a Paul Schrader script. Yeah, it's fascinating because Schrader, I mean, it's weird to think that the guy who wrote Taxi Drive was capable of doing projects as bad as a lot of the ones he's done since Taxi Driver. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I tried to watch The Canyons because I still believed in him. Unwatchable. Schrader, you can see as a director in um, American Gigolo, is probably working near as well as he's ever worked. It's like that and Cat People are probably his best 
directed best looking movies, but Schrader, the screenwriter, should have been fired by Schrader, the director, <laughs> and he should have been replaced with somebody else. Yeah, when he's when he's on fire, he's on fire. Like fucking Rolling Thunder is just incredible. And if was that Schrader? Yeah. And if you're if you're a fan of uh, Taxi Driver, you got to see Rolling Thunder. I mean those those going hand in hand. That's a good double bill. Yeah, throw hardcore on there too. That's his other. Yeah, and uh, Blue Collar. Blue Collar is fantastic. Blue Collar absolutely blew me away. I saw it for the first time uh, either at the end of last year or like the beginning of these, this year, but it just, I couldn't believe how good that movie was. That's another one. That's like Taxi Driver where just every element of yeah. it is playing at such a high level. Easily one that's, of his best screenplays. He, uh, yeah, and he almost, that's the one that he almost like had a nerve. He actually did have a nervous breakdown in the middle of making it and almost couldn't finish making because everybody on that movie hated each other so much. Yeah, but... But it was worth it. In uh, Paul Mooney's book, Black is the New White, that came out a couple of years ago, a really good book. If you're if you're interested in Richard Pryor, you really got to read that book because, you know, he was his best friend for so many years, and you really get an inside look at, at Pryor that's very, very honest. And he talks about Pryor working on Blue Collar and how miserable he was and unsure of everything. But how proud he was after it was actually finished. Yeah. And that movie really, really came together. And you can feel the tension on screen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Yafakoto's terrifying in that movie. He's yeah. so good in it. That performance is just... And it, it's amazing because he doesn't ever get the credit that Pryor or Kaitel does yeah. just as an actor. And I mean, Kaitel and Pryor, I, I don't have a bad word in the world to say about them. They're both you know, in the friggin' stratosphere. Probably Pryor's best pure acting. Yeah. But Yafa Koto, I mean, I've, I've, because I'm a homicide fan, I just always thought he was one of the best yeah. in the world, whoever did it. I don't understand why he didn't, he didn't get that sort of first class recognition. Yeah. Do you know he was the original pick to play Captain Picard? Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Star Trek Next Generation was originally going to be Yafa Koto was Captain Picard and Wesley Snipes was Geordi. Jesus. And that would have gone from being my least favorite Star Trek show to my most favorite. Oh, my God. (laughs) I would watch that. Right? You could see what they were going with, with that, the thought of those picks. That would have been such an, like, such a more naturalist show than what it became. Yeah. So I would put, uh, to bring it back to Marauder and and American Gigolo, I mean, that's just, it's one of those scores that I would put similarly to uh, American Psycho, actually, where the music just really keys you into the character so well and the time frame and just the entire vibe. Cause you can't really divorce American psycho from like Huey Lewis in the news and the music that he loves. It just all comes together to form this character that you couldn't explain. Otherwise you couldn't explain it without the music and gigolo. Even if you're unfamiliar with the time period or the vibe or anything, that music just keys you into it right away. And it's just, it's really, really clever music.
Marauder's one of the best. I mean, Flashdance, he had a hand in. He had a hand in a lot of like the really defining 80s music vibe capturing of certain time periods. Did we ever tell the story of the Flashdance theme song on this podcast? I don't think so. I don't think so. This is one of my favorite stories in all of filmmaking. I think it's the funniest thing. You know the Flashdance theme, Maniac? Yeah. She's a maniac. She's the Michael Cimbello one. Mm Mm-hmm. All about how she's a maniac because she's just dancing like, you know, for her she's life. She's never danced before. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the mani- the song Maniac was not originally written for the movie Flashdance. It was originally written for the movie Maniac. Are you serious? From 1980, one of the video nasties, one of the most banned, yeah. most violent movies ever made, which has that famous scene where the guy climbs on the hood of a car and shoots that guy's face off like point blank and you watch it in slow motion. And it was originally a song about he's a maniac because he was, you know, like murdering people and cutting their scalps off and pinning them to mannequins and banging the mannequins. Oh man. That was the original content of maniac. I I did not know that. They rejected. Yeah. yeah. They rejected the song because they thought it was too like light for that movie. (laughs) So then I guess when he got the flash dance gig, he was like, well, fuck it. I'm not, Letting this melody go to waste. I'm a so huge he, fan of that soundtrack. Yeah, me too. I'm a huge fan of Flashdance all around. Yeah, absolutely. So he rejiggered a little bit and he changed the lyrics and it's no longer about like <laughs> an axe maniac. It's now about like a dance maniac. <laughs> That's incredible. But you didn't know, this is like one of my absolute favorite movie stories. I think it's so funny. Oh, that yeah, makes me like good. the song more. That's too good. That one and the fact that the guy who directed I Was a Teenage Zombie immediately quit film and became a monk after it was done. <laughs> it was this like low budget, like trauma, really gross out horror movie. And as soon as he was done, he disappeared and became a monk. Those Damn. are the two great ones in, in the history of film. <laughs> uh, another one I really like, I'm not quite sure if underrated applies to the movie. I'm pretty sure it does, but I think it definitely does to the soundtrack. Um, the Verkmeister harmonies, the Bellatar movie from uh, 2000, which Bellatar, he's like a little bit of a cult classic. Now they have the Bellatar t-shirt. But yeah. it feels like whenever anybody talks about Bellatar, they talk about um, Satan Tango or about Damnation or now about the Turn Horse. But my favorite from his is the Verkmeister Harmonies, which is um, closing in on three hours long and all done in 39 shots. And they're like 39 of the most beautiful shots you could imagine. Mm. I mean, everything is perfectly in place. And it's such an elaborate, it's such an elaborate piece of choreography as a film you know, the cameras move. There's like dance sequences and people are moving and the camera's moving in time and like everything is just moving so that even the 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 light flares are like perfectly timed. It's just this unbelievable achievement of visual weight. So the music had to be right up there. Yeah. And what they ended up doing was it's this guy, Mihaly Vig. He's Hungarian, so I'm sure I'm destroying the pronunciation of his name. But he has this really like long, quiet, languid score it sounds a lot like the fargo soundtrack Mm. but for my money even like slightly prettier yeah and it's very simple it's very stripped down it's almost just a couple melodies that play over and over in in different slightly different arrangements right and it's just stunning
I think just sheerly in terms of like the beauty of a soundtrack, it's probably like my number one in anything. Yeah, I'd say that's still underrated, that one. Yeah, you don't, it, it had like a little bit of a moment, but then, I don't know, it's sort of, it feels like it's been drifting from people. Mm. And it's such a great, it's easily Tar's best screenplay, I think. I think the the writing is really good in it and the, and the storytelling is really sharp. All right, I'm going to jump to 2007 with uh, Dan in real life. Which I like. Yeah. I like that movie. Jenna <laughs> movie. doesn't like it. Yeah, Cody likes and I don't really like. I I mean, it was, I watched it, I think on TV or maybe, no, I don't remember. I saw it. I didn't like it. But I love the soundtrack because it's Sandra Lerkay, who is this a Norwegian singer-songwriter who I like in general. And I think that's part of why I saw that film is mm. because I heard that he did the whole soundtrack for it. It's not all, I guess, like, it, I don't know how picky we want to be. There a lot. Some of it's him doing covers or him, uh, you know, putting together covers. But he did all the uh, original soundtrack for it right, on top of that. So it was all for the movie. Love it. I, it, You know what? It really reminds me, even the stuff where he's not singing, it has that kind of John Bryan sound to it. Yeah. Like a really nice, like, just emotional. The music's emotional. You can listen to the music, and it, I think it's far superior than, than the film. The film, I didn't get any emotions out of, but... The music I really liked. I think my favorite track is To Be Surprised. Did you ever stop to think along the way? But baby, be prepared to be surprised. Better be prepared to be surprised. Baby, be prepared to be surprised. It's all I know. I'm not gonna stay. Obvious observations everybody makes But baby, be prepared to be surprised Better be prepared to be surprised Baby, be prepared to be surprised It's all I know I don't know. I did. So you do you remember the music from it, Cody? I do. Uh, I really like the the film, so I probably remember the film more. But Sandra Lurke, it seemed like he had like a moment with like Pitchfork where he was getting like a lot of reviews and people really were into him for a time. And then I don't know, he just kind of fell by the wayside. But he was no, he just he, released a new album because he, he got divorced and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he. I was about to say he was very, very talented. He was one of those guys that like you don't have to be into like whatever the new like foreign indie ish dude is yeah, doing. He did his own like thing. He, was, he was really, really good, really good songwriter. Great stuff. You know, I, I think that's a great pick. A Giallo one that I really love is uh, New York Ripper, which uh, very fucking uh, Italian cheese just the, sleaze. The grossest, best. Yeah. It's just like a little movie. I love it. And it's, it's sleazy to the point that you don't even know what the fuck you just watched by the end of it. And it's I, to the point where it almost like wraps around and yeah. becomes like vaguely respectable, the which thing, I think yeah. happened to Fulci just as a human being. <laughs> yeah, it's a Fulci film. Francesco Damasi, who uh, 
who did some Western stuff, I think, too. Kind of an underrated guy. Didn't do too many. All of his stuff, if you just type his name in YouTube, it's all pretty listenable, pretty awesome. This is my favorite of his. He scored the shit out of this fucking movie. I mean, these are great, great songs. Very catchy. Could be songs for like some TV show in the 70s or whatever. the little like mini songs you know little one minuteers throughout the film like i have the whole soundtrack the whole soundtrack's incredible every single thing on it just expertly done so much care whereas obviously with the film not too much care just kind of thrown together i mean they're just trying to get sensation out of it that's that kind of film there's some great moments in it it's worth seeing if you like that kind of stuff but if you like that kind of stuff it's probably one of the best it might but be it's it's one of those things where if you don't like that kind of stuff it's one of the worst it's yeah. like the searchers in that way <laughs> if you're a westerns guy like the Searchers is going to be absolute top tier and if you're not it's going to be like one of the worst movies you've yeah. ever seen new york rippers like if that. you want italian sleazy horror this is this is your bible basically yeah i mean it does all the tricks really um, but the score i could just listen to any day of the week and you wouldn't even know it was a horror score i guess right off the bat it makes sense, though. Like, lot, it makes sense. But I agree. It yeah, could be it could like be for, just, like, a cop show. Well, yeah. a lot of those were like that. Like, the Cannibal Holocaust theme song is, like, pastoral. Yeah. They really... It, it almost is part of the charm of those Italian ones. They had these, like, really, like... Like, some of them would go into, like, folk rock. Yep. They had these really, like, unaggressive scores while all these terrible things were happening. <laughs> the exception was Goblin, who were, like, as aggressive as any movie score. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's a score. Definitely. It's all on YouTube. Most of these are on YouTube. Download the whole fucking thing because it's just incredible. Uh, another one I really like. I was going to talk about the bounty score. Yeah. By Vangelis. But I don't know if I have that much to say about the bounty score other than it's like awesome. And the bounty is really good. And <laughs> if you just, haven't it's seen interesting. the bounty. Yeah. Because you don't hear that for that kind of film, you know, for a period piece that has this like very 80s like. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a little bit chariots of fiery, but like darker and it's Tahiti in the in these beautiful old ships. But what I'd rather talk about along those lines for one that's sort of you don't ever hear is there's this 1958 
monster movie called The Colossus of New York. The story goes, and I'm not quite sure if this is true. I've, I've read conflicting. I've, I've tried to dig up as much about the movie as I could, and I've read conflicting interviews with surviving people about whether this is true. But the story goes, there was a uh, musician strike at the studio where they were doing when they were editing this movie. So they couldn't get the band to come in because this was 1958 and every movie and every TV show had a big, huge orchestra. Oh yeah. All the music was like corn gold still, you know, it was, it was the days of the big lavish. Um, a lot of the times overproduced scores, these overwhelming, like I remember on the beach has parts where you almost can't hear people talking because the music's so loud. <laughs> so here's this little like fog shrouded little monster movie about a, a scientist who gets his brain put in a robot and then goes crazy. And the score by this guy, Van Cleave, who was uh, more of a more of an arranger for TV show scores. He was um, like how John Williams started just doing sort of incidental music for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Right. He had that sort of a career path. Um, he did a minimalist solo jazz piano soundtrack for this movie. Yeah, very modern. Yeah, and very off kilter and very like unsettling a lot in a large part because there's just no other movie that does it. Yeah. And there's no other comparison to it. So you'll see these shots of like the Triborough bridge and the, um, the Colossus of New York, this like eight foot robot, like lurching out of the water at night in the fog. And you'll just hear this like brooding, like hammering the piano slow, almost like, um, Almost like a slasher score, like what Carpenter would be doing later, but right. but non-synth on a real piano. Yeah, it feels a lot like if the Halloween score were done on just a piano. And mm. also had kind of that charm of someone who doesn't really know how to play, but they're like, they're almost missing the key, but they're getting it. But just like enough that it sounds just like slightly off. It, yeah. yeah, it has an um, impromptu feel like yeah. he's trying, he's composing as he's doing it. Almost. Right. Yeah. And and it, it, it makes the the movie feel a little more alive than a lot of the other ones because you have this unpredictable element just going through it. Yeah. And sometimes like a little piano bit will come in in the middle of a scene and be like, what the hell was that? <laughs> just like keep you, keep you going. I'll do a quick sort of lightning round at this point. I really liked Submarine by uh, Richard Iowade, the director. Uh, Alex Turner from Arctic Monkeys uh, did the whole soundtrack for that. 
And it's actually also a really great original soundtrack. Uh, another one I would recommend. It, it's easily a standalone solo album, which I, I mean, it is his own solo thing. It's not Arctic Monkeys. I also want to mention the Alloy Orchestra, who does like a lot of Russian silent films, at least that's what I've noticed. The one that really stood out that I remember, and I remember as I'm watching it thinking the music is amazing and it's really like just bringing this entire movie together was Man with a Movie Camera by Vertov, mm. which is a wonderful movie. But I think that when the soundtrack is right too, it really makes it like, you know, just it, it feels modern. It feels really like you're there and you're in it and it's like fantastic movie. And just got a, a gorgeous new Blu-ray. I mean, staggering Blu-ray where you you can't even fathom that you're seeing it at this resolution and so clear and gorgeous. Do we know if that score is included on the Blu-ray? Because there's another one too by the Cinematic Orchestra. That's pretty good. There's yeah, a I'm whole not bunch. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason, that movie people just I guess because it's non-narrative, people just are dying to do scores to that one. Yeah, there's like a handful. And then I guess the uh, the maybe last two I'll sort of uh, just spit out is. I actually uh, didn't see this movie, but Cody did, and he said it was good. Um, but I love Beck. Like, you know, if you, you want, like, the president of the fan club of the world of Beck, it's <laughs> me. And, Bust uh, out a quick uh, Beck verse. In the time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey, a beauty in my veins, and I'm out to cut the junkie with the plastic eyeballs. All right. Um, see? Jenna can just do this all day long. <laughs> when we would, like, test out the microphones, like, really early on when we were doing episodes, every time I had her test out the mic... She would just bust out a Beck verse. I would just say, Jenna, Beck verse. And she would just grab it out of the entire discography. Just I know something. you really want it because your daddy's always on it and he knows just how to flaunt it. He got pictures in his wallet. Anyhow. See, whenever you do that, I don't know if you're doing Kid Rock or Beck. <laughs> I have this thing where I can't, I feel like Beck and Kid Rock are kind of the same person. That's like my, my great big theory. They don't look alike, but just in spirit. I'm not talking about they're the actual same human beings. But a lot of the Kid Rock stuff, similar rhyme scheme vibe to Beck. I feel like there's kind of a overlap there. That's my grand it's theory. Very like white guy learning to rap. Yeah. You guys don't understand Beck. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, he did the whole soundtrack for Nacho Libre. Great, great soundtrack. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. I remember I wanted to see the movie because of that, and then I missed it. It's a good movie. It's a, it, it was really hard to follow up something like Napoleon Dynamite, which just became like a cult classic right off the bat. Uh, like, how do you fucking do a, a sophomore film after that? And I think it's a good film. I don't think it's a great film. I think the score is phenomenal. The song choices in it are great. The original stuff is great. It melds in 
the two, you know, they just play around and it's awesome. I think you would dig it. I don't, I don't think you'd, you'd dislike the film. No, I have to. I, I wanted to see it. And last one I'll throw in there, even though it's like not, it kind of is, it doesn't really work for this, but I really like it. So I'm going to say it is a listomania by Ken Russell. Oh yeah. That's a great pick. Rick Wakeman did the, the soundtrack for that. And he was, um, he's from yes. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. And those songs are really, really good. And it's all Roger Daltrey singing when he is singing. Awesome. Awesome soundtrack. That's just like an experience of a movie. I don't even know if I would ever call it like a very good movie or even a good movie, but that's an essential movie. I like that movie. I, I like, but I love Ken Russell. I, th- I, I like his monitor episodes more than I like that movie. I like the one, you know, his composer ones he did for that. Like I, I like Debussy film more than I like Listomania. But Listomania, I feel like anybody who's interested like in movies and the different ways a movie can be, you have to watch that movie. If you just want to see a bunch of women dance around a giant erection. All right. That's all you <laughs> it's Sign there. me up. It's there. My uh my lightning round is gonna be all Vincent Gallo. He put out a record called Recordings of Music for Film, which collected some stuff he did for Buffalo sixty six, mostly stuff from like early short films he did that we've never seen, nobody's ever seen. And an Eric Mitchell film, The Way It Is, which was, you know, one of those mid-80s Rockets, Red Galera, Steve Buscemi, etc. movies that just never really saw the light of day, never got a VHS release, DVD, whatever. Nobody's really seen it, but I've heard the music from it, from this uh, recordings of music from film album. And, you know, Vincent Gallo, really good scores come out of this guy. He uh, he didn't score Brown Bunny. He only scored Buffalo 66 and these other small films. I think there's even some downtown 81 tracks on this record. It's the kind of thing where like you haven't seen most of these films. So you just hear these songs and you start coming up with like ideas of like what the film is like or just even your own film ideas when you listen to it. It's kind of like a blank slate. They aren't too long the tracks. They're usually like two minute, three minute. Maybe some of them are one minute, I think even but they just put some ideas in your head. They're pretty uh, bare. They don't really point to any particular genre. You could sort of go a lot of different ways with it. I think it's a really interesting record to check out. But I also love, uh, one of my favorite examples of, you know, score stories in film is the story of The Brown Bunny, which John Frusciante wrote a whole bunch of tracks for that Vincent Gallo listened to while he was making the film and fully expected to use in the film and then sitting in the editing room, he realized, nope, none of these really work God, for this. rejected scores whatsoever. Like episode. Yeah. So the whole, the Brown Bunny soundtrack album is half for Shanti tracks that Vincent Gallo only listened to these songs while he was making the entire film. He would just listen to these five or six tracks over and over and over again. Really, really thought he was going to use them. Didn't end up using them. And then the, the other half of the soundtrack are these really choice tracks. He's got uh, Jackson C. Frank, uh, Milk and Honey, which is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard in my entire life. Silver is the autumn 
Soft and tender are her skies Yes and no are the answers written Autumn's leaving And winter's coming I think that I'll be Moving along I've got to leave her And find another I've got to sing my Gorgeous, gorgeous track. Uh, some great jazz stuff on there too. I mean, he's he's a really huge like '60s, '70s music fan. Really into like progressive stuff, as we know from the stuff in Buffalo '66, the Yes track uh, in that film. Buffalo '66, another great score. And so I guess that would be the trifecta: recording some music for film, Brown Bunny soundtrack, Buffalo '66 soundtrack. Great, great stuff there. Uh, I got a few. Um, there's this little industrial film, because of course I'm always going to pick a little industrial film, called A Day in the Death of Donnie B from the 70s, written and directed by this guy, Carl Fick, who I've never been able to find anything about. And I'm not sure if he's the guy who did the music, because I've never seen the credits for this movie. Wow. But it's this really cool, like, it's like right after like Trouble Man and all those movies. So it's 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 a uh, heroin scare movie set in the... Uh, inner city and the soundtrack is like this really nice um mid-period soul almost improvised score mm. about 17 minute long movie and the the score never stops through the whole thing it's just the the whole thing's just told almost through this music this 17 minute track which is really good and then uh, a couple of uh european ones from sort of the the heyday of european scores in the late 60s early 70s blood for dracula the Warhol movie, which isn't very good, but is kind of famous because it's where he got the idea. Monty Python got the idea of the Black Knight from. Oh, wow. Because they keep hacking off Dracula's limbs one by (laughs) one and he won't die. Nice. Um, It's this goofy, campy Warhol movie. I don't really like Warhol as a filmmaker that much. And uh, I think Paul Morrissey directed it. I, I don't like them. I don't like that high camp style at all. But the score is this really beautiful really evocative thing, clearly going for like the rustic, like old Europe vibe. Right. Very striking score. And another one is uh, another kind of crappy movie. Uh, This one is French from the mid seventies. I want to say called Balitis. Oh man. That's yeah. You turned me onto that. I've listened to that a dozen times. It's this French softcore period piece. And it's like exactly what you imagine like exploitation cinema in France come out. It's just people standing in front of windows with like soft light coming through and like whispering about governesses mm-hmm. while they're naked for like an hour and a half. But the score is Ooh. so good. It's very lush, very seventies, like pushes that 
that like Morricone meets synth sound like as far as it could go. great sound on that one um don't bother with the movie the soundtrack really is worth the poster is gorgeous too yes and the cinematography is beautiful it's a beautiful yeah. looking movie if you like if you like that soft stuff which i i really adore worth looking at yes uh my last one is a movie that thankfully is a great movie that everybody should watch uh and criterion i think is finally putting it out chaplin's uh limelight mm. with a score that at the least was arranged by chaplin i don't know i don't know if he composed it but the the melody was chaplin's and it's um it's pure chaplin it's violins and it's pitched up like emotionally as high as you can do it the whole the whole movie is about a um this suicidal dancer who um charlie chaplin plays like an old vaudevillian who talks her out of killing herself uh and it's very you know like a guy who was born in the victorian era just pure unironic like lovely lush beautiful violins and stuff pitched up to the to the emotional limit and pretty overlooked that film yeah it really is which is interesting because it's the only place you can go to see charlie chaplin and buster keaton do an act together right keaton was really down on his luck at the time this was when he was broke and the the story always was that chaplin didn't know at the time and he always felt bad because if he'd known how bad off keaton was he would have like put him in much more of the movie which would have been a great thing to see them sort of tag teaming a movie together. Mm. But as it stands, they get one scene together and it's really good. It's just a wonderful movie, Limelight. It's one of my favorite Chaplins. All right. I think that was pretty fucking dense, that one. That episode. (laughs) A lot of great stuff for people to check out. We're going to close it out without a mailbag, but I want to remind you guys, you can call our voicemail, which is 718-395-9711. Nobody's been doing this yet. <laughs> I think people are a little shy because we're going to be playing the voicemails on the on the episode. But if you have a question or a comment or anything for us, just leave us a voicemail. You can call us 24 hours a day. It just goes straight to voicemail. We're not going to pick up and you're going to like freak out and hang up. Yeah, no, you don't you have just, to say your name. Well, say your name so we know who the fuck you are. <laughs> I mean, that would be helpful. No, just get drunk and leave us a voicemail. Just leave us anything. You know what? Nobody's done it yet, so if you're the first one to actually do it, we'll give you something. Actually, it's really worth calling the number of anything just to hear the like evil British woman. Yeah, we have some strange <laughs> British woman for some reason, some robot that, that like, uh, leave a voicemail. Yeah, and you're like, geez, all right. 
It's interesting. Uh, it's worth calling up just to hear that. But please, you know, leave a voicemail anyway, and we'll we'll answer your question on the show. And if you're the first one to do this, which you probably will be, because nobody's doing it, because everybody's shy, just uh, we'll we'll give you something. We're not gonna tell you what. Just do it. It's a and, dog. Yeah, it's a dog. <laughs> We're giving you a puppy. Yay! A basket full of puppies I will show puppy. up at your door. Any uh, final words from any of y'all before we split? Yeah, we haven't talked about Mad Max on any episodes, but rest assured that Mad Max is the best movie of the year. Fury Road, I mean. And if you haven't seen it yet, you're a fucking idiot. You're garbage. (laughs) (laughs) You're just a garbage person, which I guess I am because I have not seen it yet. Well, get fucking get going. You know what I saw recently, though, which I loved, which now you need to see this movie is the Dwayne Johnson Hercules from last year. I saw that movie. You didn't like it? No. I love that movie. <laughs> I can't take any of the movies anymore where somebody just yells their name at some point while jumping in a movie. It's like this weird thing that's become a major part of nearly every action movie of the past half decade. Somebody goes, I am whatever and jumps and I can't, I can't look at that But it's Hercules. Anymore. Hercules has to say his name. Hercules never did that. <laughs> I, I, I adore that fucking movie. The agnostic. I liked Clash of the Titans, though, actually. You liked the that Neeson one? The one, yeah. It wasn't great, but it was fun. The agnostic aspects of uh, the Hercules, the rock movie, makes it one of my favorite fantasy films ever made. Easily. So brilliant. Watch it. That's my Mad Max, all right? That's Mad my Max rallying has, cry. Has some good, like, kind of metal music. Yeah. Mad Max has everything. <laughs> Fury Road is really like everything I want from an action movie at this point in my life, which I haven't felt about since Universal Soldier, Regeneration, and Gravity, I think, are the other times recently that I felt like that, that gave me all of what I wanted out of it. Fury Road, just, yeah, just fucking, just fucking see it. I'll see it. I'll see it. Uh, I'll see it in a couple of days. We should do a an episode because I know Jenny, you've seen it, and yeah, I just got to get on board and see it so we can talk about it. Jenny, you got any final words? I watched the Russian Little Mermaid the other day. It was really charming and cute. You guys should check Wait, it out. Wait, is that the cartoon? No, it was live action. It was called Rusa Lochka. From when? Like the sixty, late sixties, early seventies. Hmm. No, wait, seventy six. I googled it. I googled it, as John says. <laughs> <laughs> It was uh, just, it's on YouTube, actually. Oh, I looked yeah? up on YouTube, had uh, closed captions, great, really cute. Everyone was beautiful. It was super depressing, Jenna, as a Little Mermaid should be. You right and me are going to do an episode one day just about Soviet children's movies. Yes, I actually I have to. I have that. to sit down and tell the story about the time I downloaded this, like, Soviet kids movie. Just because I wanted, some, from, like, the 70s, because I wanted something, like, light and colorful, still in, like, almost Technicolor. You know, a quick hour and a half, probably a cute little fable set in a really pretty place. And it just opens like a five minute dog fight. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Perfect. And that's like, if I ever have to explain to anybody what it's like watching Soviet kids movies. Yeah, they're much, brutal. Yeah, they, they just <laughs> open with a dog fight that I couldn't even get through. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.